chapter 3. On Sunday morning, we're studying a series entitled um, the uh, Give Me Jesus out of the book of Colossians. Uh, just a reminder as we're turning there, Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Currently in the gospel according to Luke, we'll be looking at chapter 7 tonight at 6 o'clock. Each of you are invited. We'll look at a single verse uh, this evening, or this morning rather, Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, and he said, uh, he wrote, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which, you all, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray together. Fathers, we have... Uh, sung and worshiped here this morning toward you, uh, just a fresh sense of awe and wonder that our lives and our names can be associated with your name and Jesus with your name as well. And to think about your beauty, your holiness, your love, your grace, everything about you so perfect. And we just want you to know that as we continue to worship you and studying your word that we count it an honor and a privilege, and we are deeply grateful and humbled for the privilege of being able to know you and to walk with you and to be the sheep of your pasture. We pray that you would use our time in your word this morning to deepen us in our relationship with you, that we might continue to explore and experience and make our own the fullness of this Christian life that is ours, Jesus, in your death, burial, and resurrection. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit, this work in our lives through your Holy Spirit, and we pray it in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Paul's letter to the church at Colossae was written to warn them against a broad cross-section of false doctrines that had been uh, introduced into the church uh, there. And, uh, so, and uh, so many different false doctrines, but all of them carrying the same idea that somehow the Christianity that Jesus has provided to us can somehow be improved in some way uh, on our part. And very specifically, the false teachers in Colossae were advancing the idea that Christianity could be improved in some way by the addition of, of human philosophy, or on the basis of legalism, or on the basis of a, a false or an unbiblical uh, uh, supernatural uh, kind of uh, aspect of things. Also, uh, a false asceticism. Uh, some parts of, of the false teachers were teaching that let's not be too concerned about taking holiness and these kind of things seriously as Christians. Real maturity, as it's evidenced in a Christian's life, is to understand that what we are in our hearts and what we believe and the life that we live are two entirely different things. And so they were advocating that it was completely okay to accommodate the flesh, to accommodate the practice of sin, rather res than resisting those things within our lives. And these paths uh, were, these, uh, these false doctrines were being advanced within the church 
with the idea that somehow this would take the Christians within the church into a spiritual depth and maturity that Jesus could not and the Holy Spirit uh, could not, as opposed to just simply walking with God day by day, obeying His commandments, and then as we do that, we're being conformed into the image of Christ which is the most holy, perfect, beautiful life that a person can uh, live. Then in verse 12, introduced with the words, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Paul now having dispatched all of these false doctrines within the church there, uh, he then instructed the Christians in the church there at Colossae, instructing us as well concerning Uh, how it is uh, that we are to, uh, how and where we find true spiritual depth and holiness and maturity in the Christian life. And, And this idea of spiritual maturity, spiritual depth, experiencing everything we can be as a Christian, all of the aspects of it that have to do with loving God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, soul, and strength, the supernatural of the Christian life. We don't have to head off uh, to some kind of a a convent or head off to some kind of a a special place to learn these uh, secrets, as the false teachers were saying. Uh, The Christian life and growth into maturity in the Christian life is a lot more practical than sometimes uh, people give credit to, uh, to it. It's a lot more rubber meets the road than oftentimes uh, we realize. And so Paul goes on now in this part of the letter and he goes on to write about marriage, uh, to write about uh, raising children, to write about uh, how we're to conduct ourselves in the workplace, whether we are an employee in that workplace or whether we are the owner uh, of, of the business. And as we've already seen when we studied verses 12 through 14 in the context of putting off the old man and putting on the new man in the Christian life, as we looked at that a number of weeks ago, as we come now to verses 15 through 17, we come to somewhere between uh, four and six exhortations that the Apostle Paul uh, gives us here under the theme of achieving spiritual depth and maturity. And however you want to count the number of these things that there there might be, they center around the place of the peace of God in a Christian's life, verse 15. The place of thanksgiving in a Christian's life, verse 15 and 17. The place of the Word of God in a Christian's life, uh, verse 16. The place of worship in a Christian's life, verse 16. And then the highest motivation uh, for living this kind of life that we can have as he brings it out in verse 17. It's a very, very rich section of Scripture. We remember that Paul, as he writes this letter, even in refuting the false doctrine of the false teachers, that the theme of the letter is the supremacy of Christ the centrality of Christ in Christianity, 
the preeminence of Christ in Christianity. So he took all of these false doctrines and he simply laid them uh, alongside the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus and has shown us that what Jesus has provided to us is infinitely greater than anything that the false teachers uh, were offering uh, them. And, uh, and, And that what they were offering wasn't going to provide them with anything better than we already have as Christians uh, in, in Christ. And as he heads into instructing us here in these three verses, though we'll only look at one this morning, he continues the same theme. He is focusing on Christ over and over again. You notice in verse 15, he talks about the peace of God or the peace of Christ. In verse 16, the word of Christ. In verse 17, the name of Christ. In other words, Jesus' teaching is not only the supreme instruction for what we believe as Christians, but his life and his teaching is the supreme instruction for the life that we actually live as well. And so now we formally venture into Paul's introduction in all of this related to three verses and in his instruction found there in verse 15 once again, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one uh, body. You notice here that there is something called the peace of God that is to rule in our hearts as Christians. So we read a verse like that. It tells us that the peace of God rule in your heart. And it's very easy for us to look at that and say, I can take pot shots at what that means, but I don't have the slightest idea what Paul is talking about there. And so it raises the question, what is the peace of God? Well, when we became Christians, the Holy Spirit, it is the greatest miracle that a person can ever experience, greater than being raised from the dead, greater than being uh, uh, cured from uh, the most uh, feared diseases. When we were, uh, became Christians, we were born again by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into our life and we experienced a spiritual birth. And in surrendering our lives to God, we ended our war of rebellion against God. And at that moment, the Bible says we have peace with God. But the Bible also goes on to teach about the peace of God. In other words, when we became Christians, again by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and and the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, God introduced into our lives something called the peace of God. And it speaks about an inner peace or a, a spiritual, supernatural inner quietness or tranquility that the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives as Christians. And it's supernatural. When he refers to it as the peace of God, he's not talking so much about the peace that God experiences, as wonderful as that is. What he's talking about is this is a peace only he can give to a human being. Only he can have uh, 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 bring into a Christian. It has its origin uh, in him completely. He is the source of it. He is the only one that can impart it. 
Jesus talked about this piece a number of times in his public ministry. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus spoke to the disciples then and now to us this morning. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace, that's the peace of God. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus declared in the same vein, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, uh, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. As we talk about the peace of God, some of you in this room, your mind is already moved to a famous passage that, where the Apostle Paul speaks of it in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He wrote, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now notice as well that we are to let this peace, Paul says, rule in our hearts as Christians. And that Greek word that is used, the New Testament is written in, in Greek. The, the Greek word that is used for the word rule there in the original, it literally means to act as an umpire. Uh, it might be hard to believe for some of us because we live in the United States of America and we are a sports-crazed nation. I can't tell you how happy I was to see that the Big Ten opened up their college season uh, yesterday and all of the tremendous selection we had of college football uh, yesterday. But uh, we're crazy about sports, all kinds of sports in, in the United States, but they were just as crazy about it uh, in the ancient world. And this uh, ruler or this, uh, this act as an umpire uh, as it was used in the ancient world, used exactly as we use it today to speak of the person who has the authority to preside over an athletic uh, contest, uh, to present the prizes associated with that contest and all of the various athletic uh, contests in the ancient world. When I think about, and I, I suppose we all get a world, word picture on Colossians 3.15, sooner or later. But that word umpire, just by virtue of the word umpire, my mind always goes to baseball on it, and it's, uh, it works for me. And so like our baseball umpires today, or refs uh, is in other sports, they're the ones that have the final authority in declaring someone to be safe or declaring them uh, to be out. Uh, to disqualify a contestant and ultimately to declare the winner or the loser in that uh, contest. And in the same way, Paul tells us that the peace of God should operate as an umpire in our lives as Christians. 
so that, and there are a lot of different um, motivations, a lot of different emotions that we experience in life that we can be prone to allow to become the umpire in our life, to become the emotion or the whatever that we allow to uh, drive our decision-making. Things, uh, 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 things like bitterness or envy or anger or any kind of carnal emotion that might arise out of our hearts. And, and then we're tempted to make a decision under the influence of these things and then allow them to uh, make the call in our decision uh, making. And so these things are in play, and Paul says, no, we're not to allow those things to rule in our heart, to make the decisions within our, uh, in, in our life, but we're to allow the peace of God to umpire in our life. Because where those other emotions and those other marks of the flesh will take us, the decision that it, they will produce versus a decision that the peace of God will produce are two entirely different decisions. And both in each decision will put us on two entirely different paths moving forward uh, in, in our uh, lives. Now notice that Paul made his, uh, this exhortation to the church at Colossae as a whole. He speaks to the entire church in this regard. He says, to which, speaking of this piece, to which you were called in one uh, body. So he's telling them that they are not to interact with one another, they're not to come to conclusions uh, about one another, make decisions concerning one another, being dominated by uh, fear or dominated by anger or jealousy or any of those other things, but to allow the peace of God to umpire in their hearts, to be the dominating uh, influence and decision maker uh, in, in their heart. Now, I don't think that there can be any uh, doubt at all that given just the sheer amount, I mean, as we've studied the first couple of chapters, this wasn't just one or two false doctrines that were running rampant in the church at Colossae. There were all so many false teachers and so many uh, false doctrines that were coming uh, forth. And just by virtue of the sheer amount of the false uh, doctrine and, uh, uh, that was being taught there, that this church would have absolutely have been uh, divided. Because for the simple reason that all false doctrine and all false teachers produce division. Because in order to advance a false doctrine, I must then put down the truth and even other false doctrines and other to ha in order to have the preeminence within a church. So you have people, not only people following false doctrine, but they're glomming onto various different uh, false doctrines and coming now to compete with one another even within a single uh, local uh, church. And, uh, and so this is the way that it always is with false teachers. In order for them to get the preeminence, they have to insert this kind of division and then prevail in that division so people will give them the recognition that they need. Paul wrote of this very thing as he wrote to uh, his first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 11, verse 18. He said, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, 
and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And he's talking about this kind of dynamic when uh, false teaching or uh, carnal kind of activity begins to take place within a church. It always results in division. And here for healing to occur, And Paul wants the church to be rescued, wants the church to be saved. And a lot of damage has been probably done in that church. And so for the healing to occur in that church and for unity to be restored, that would require now that decisions would be made in that church, both personal decisions and corporate decisions, the church as a whole, that these decisions would be founded upon the peace of God and not envy or anger or bitterness or hostility or selfishness or selfish ambition. And in order to bring, to unify this church now at this point would be a very, very daunting uh, task, and Paul knew it. And, and as the church might have been kind of facing all of this division and wondering how can we ever get our old church back? How can we ever have with God what we once had now that we've got this awful history now that that marks us? And Paul said, you'll have your old church back. Uh, The unity and the beauty of that church, it'll occur as each individual Christian determines to be in tune and led by the peace of God because that would then put each and every Christian in tune with one another and with the Holy Spirit as a result. And so we should exalt peace in our relationships with one another above everything else in the context of a, of a local church, unless, uh, that, unless what I'm being called to live at peace with is something that is contrary to the Word of God. But this umpiring aspect of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians, it not only has a, a corporate and a, a church application, but it is very, very important for us to understand that it has an individual, personal application as well. And, and this, this verse, Colossians 3.15, can absolutely transform a Christian's life. And no one will have the Christian life that God wants us to have uh, without understanding and walking in the truth that Paul is bringing uh, out here. And this truth has an individual application concerning one of the most important questions in the Christian life, and that is, how can I know the will of God in all of the various areas of decision-making in my life? And so how does this let the peace of God umpire in your heart apply to us individually? Because if it doesn't happen uh, in the individual Christians within a church to know how to allow the peace of God to umpire in our hearts, it will never happen in the church as a whole. And I would contend that the average Christian learns about all of this 
on an individual level before they ever learn about it on a corporate level, that we bring it from the individual part of our life into our our church uh, gathering uh, as a whole versus the other way around. Now, let me start by saying that the very surest way to know the will of God for our lives, the foolproof, peerless, cannot be improved upon way to know the will of God for our lives is through the Word of God, or know the will of God for our lives is through the Word of God, through the Bible, and asking ourselves about every decision that we make in life, and every direction that I'm determining to take in life. What does the Bible say about what I'm to do here? How does the Bible tell me that a Christian ought to make this decision or uh, what a Christian ought to do in this particular circumstance? And first and foremost, find out what does the Bible teach here because that's the sure foundation for us and then to actually then do that in our lives, make decisions in uh, alliance with the Word of God. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 14, Paul writes, but do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? So we know immediately from the Word of God, there doesn't have to be any agonizing over whether I as a Christian am to marry a non-Christian. It's clear in the Bible that I am not to do that. The Bible has made that clear. Another example, for instance, is Psalm 1, verse 1. The psalmist writes, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So as we look at that, and it teaches us that we are never to make our decisions based upon the counsel we receive from someone who scorns God. Or we are never to receive counsel and make decisions on the basis of the counsel that we would receive from anyone who does not take God and His Word into their thinking. And so it goes on in all the way through the Bible in terms about what does the Bible say about lying? What does it say about stealing? What does it say about sexual immorality and sexual uh, purity? What does it say about what kind of a worker I'm to be at uh, work? What kind of husband or wife am I to be? What kind of a, 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 what am I supposed to do in raising children? And on and on and on the list goes as long as we could uh, ever talk about it in terms of the things that God's Word addresses specifically and unmistakably and uh, clearly. But then what about all those decisions in life that the Bible doesn't address uh, specifically? Like what city should I live in? Should I stay in California or go be with all my friends in North Carolina or Idaho or Texas or (laughs) all the places they're running to? Uh, Should I rent uh, this apartment or should I not rent this apartment? Should I buy a house? Should I not buy a house? There is not, there is no uh, buy a house book in the Bible. Uh, uh, Should I sell a house? Should I not sell 
my house? Should I go to college? Should I not go to college? If I do go to college, what should be my major? If I don't go to college, what kind of training should I get in, uh, in order to uh, learn a trade? Should I go to the mission field or not? Should I marry this person or not? And immediately we see from our own lives how many decisions there are in life that are not clearly addressed by the Word of God with a yes or no uh, clarity related to those issues. Now we, al- we also know from the Bible, and it's an important thing to be confident in, And that is that God wants us in the middle of his will even more than we want to be in his will. And we want to be in his will a lot. Passages that speak to this, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So God says, I want you to trust me, I want you to lift Uh, your prayers up to me related to this thing that you are looking at, this decision that you're needing to make. That's your part in this. And then God takes supplying us with the wisdom that we need for that decision completely upon himself. That's your part. My part is to reveal that to you. James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, that means everybody, Um, Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So here again, the same principle. We need wisdom. We lack the wisdom. And so we're to pray and ask God in faith for that wisdom. God makes the promise. He makes it his responsibility to then supply us with that wisdom and direction. Now, One frustration that we can have related to the will of God, even despite all of the promises that he gives uh, to us, guaranteeing that he will provide us with the knowledge of his will and provide us with direction, is that uh, while he promises his wisdom, he doesn't always tell us when he's going to give us that wisdom. And oftentimes he'll make us wait until the timing is right to reveal, this is what I want you to do here. Now, I'm a type A person. I'm not a a patient person by nature, and God has made me very patient. You just point me in a direction, give me a shovel, tell me how long you want the ditch dug, I I will go and, and do that. And so, when you're dealing with someone like me, I'm not surprised at all, and I think there's a few of you out there that are like me as well, that when, if God, when God tells me what his will is concerning a decision that I'm facing, I will automatically assume that he wants me to do it right now. I'm so dense it won't even enter into my mind that he's revealed to me what he wants me to do, and now the next step is, do you want me to do it now? I just jump. So I'm not surprised at all when he's dealing with knuckleheads like me and nudge whoever you want sitting next to you or in the same row, but that he waits to reveal his will until the timing is right because he knows we will launch out into it uh, immediately. There's a timing uh, associated with all of this. I think concerning the will of God, we can sometimes wonder, uh, why doesn't God just give us 
a foolproof formula for knowing His will. Something like, you know, this plus this uh, times that, and you work through the whole formula, and there's God's will at the end of it. I don't even mind if the formula takes five minutes uh, to accomplish, or even an hour, whatever it might be. Just give me that formula, and I just insert the data, put it through the formula, and then I get that answer and, uh, 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 by virtue uh, of, of the formula. And I think one of the reasons he doesn't is that we would be tempted then to uh, replace him in our lives with a formula. We would develop a relationship with a formula that uh, 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 the part of our relationship that is supposed to belong uh, solely uh, to, to God himself. And so, uh, because we would just, because obeying and following a formula is much easier for us, certainly on our flesh, than the way that he actually leads us. But if God made revealing his will to us a formula, as opposed to being on the basis of prayer, on the basis of faith, on the basis of waiting uh, uh, upon him, uh, it would be for many of us a disaster relationally with him. And if knowing God's will could be reduced to some formula, again, uh, the temptation to jettison the relationship, no more needing to seek him in prayer, no longer needing to step out in in, uh, faith, no more waiting upon God, uh, and no need to walk with God day by day closely so that I'm uh, in, in an intimate enough relationship with him, close enough to him that I can hear his Uh, His voice. And so God does things in a way that leads us in His will, but in a way that keeps us wonderfully dependent upon Him. And no sacrifice or danger to the personal relationship. And He's very, very wise in, in doing so. Some of the ways that God leads us and makes his will known to us, uh, as we see just in the book of Acts alone, we don't even have to look at the rest of the Bible, we'll just look at it in the book of Acts alone. Sometimes he makes his will known through spiritual visions. In the book of Acts, at least five times he directed his saints by way of spiritual visions. At other times he revealed his will uh, through his prophets. At other times, he guided his servants through circumstances. He opened doors. He closed uh, uh, doors. Sometimes it was through persecution. Sometimes it was through illness. Sometimes he led people uh, by virtue of the operation of spiritual gifts, by virtue of a word of wisdom or a word uh, of knowledge. Sometimes God revealed his will by way of an angel. Sometimes he revealed uh, his will in speaking to people directly, as he did to Paul on the road to uh, Damascus. So God has a lot of ways in which he reveals his will uh, to us, even beyond the Scriptures. And for our purposes this morning, one way he leads us as well is by the way of his peace. And here's how it works in the nuts and bolts of it. We come to a place that we're all very, very familiar with in life, where we have a decision to make, a big decision. This speaks to all decisions, but let's just think about a major decision within our life. 
and a major decision in our life in which there are really two choices that can be made here. And there is a fork in the road. I come up to this fork. I'm going to have to go left. I'm going to have to go right. I'm going to have to go one way or another. But I don't know which fork the Lord wants me to take. And so when I look at, for instance, the fork on my left hand, if I look at making this decision here, the left-hand fork, if I lose my peace, if I lose my spiritual uh, uh, tranquility, if the peace peace of the Holy Spirit within me kind of gets crumpled up like a piece of paper, uh, in looking at that left-hand fork, then what I have is a sense from the Holy Spirit that as much as we may want to go in that direction, we are not to move in that direction. Because, and it is the peace of God umpiring in our hearts saying, that left-hand fork is out, and the right-hand fork is safe. And that's how it works in, uh, within, uh, within our lives. And, and when you resolve not to, okay, I resolve not to take the left-hand fork, even though I leave a million dollars on the table in saying no to this offer, then immediately our peace returns into our heart and we recognize this is the right decision. Everybody will think you're crazy. You may think you're crazy in making that decision, but it is the only, it is the only decision you can make and maintain your peace is by saying no to that left-hand uh, fork. And this is what Christians mean when they say, um, I have a check in my spirit about this. They're talking about this very thing. Or they say, I didn't have a peace about uh, saying yes to that or accepting that invitation or uh, making that decision. And it means that there's something wrong here. The Holy Spirit may not reveal to us what's wrong on the left-hand fork, but we know inside by our peace, something's not right here. The Holy Spirit within me is stirred up. He is not comfortable about that direction, and I lose my peace if I even think about going uh, down that, uh, that path. And, uh, and that is the peace of God ruling within our lives. And this is one of the ways that the Lord leads us as Christians. It's the Holy Spirit within our hearts, within our spirit, umpiring or making the call concerning that, the decision. Again, that, that decision is out. This decision uh, is safe. And he unsettles us in terms of going in that direction or making that decision and uh, communicating that he is then unsettled about going in that direction or making that particular uh, decision, and he is unsettled within us. Now, conversely, uh, when you hit that uh, fork in the road that goes to the right hand, and as you look at that and God wants you to go down that right hand uh, fork, then your peace will remain. It isn't that uh, as we hit these decisions in our life that God will give us uh, a little more peace for the decision he wants us to make than the decision that he doesn't want us to make. 
The Bible teaches that as Christians, we already have the peace of God. We, it, it's a part of our life. We operate from that. We don't need more from it. The instruction comes when we look at anything that disturbs our peace. And so when we look at the right-hand fork and our peace abides, then that can be one of the ways that God is saying no to this side of the decision and yes to this particular uh, side uh, of, of that, that decision. I remember uh, 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 being as a young pastor on a very long train ride in India with Gail Irwin, who's a friend, and most of you know him, a, a tremendous servant of the Lord, and, and uh, who was ultimately going to become a good friend. And we're on this long, long train ride. It was, you know, started very early in the morning and ended uh, late in the evening. And uh, we were in a compartment. There were other people in the compartment, uh, but everyone was off and going. So here I've got Gail D. Irwin all to myself as a young uh, pastor and a young Christian, by the way, at that time. And so I, I began to ask him every question I could think of about the Christian life, every question that I could think of about uh, Christian ministry and how do you handle this and how do you handle that. And in the course of our conversation, uh, we began to talk about this very uh, subject that we're looking at today, the leading of God within our lives. And Gail said in the course of that, uh, uh, that discussion, he said, I have learned to never go against my peace. Talking about this peace here, the peace of God. I have learned never to go against my peace. Every time I have done so, it has been a mistake. And, uh, and I knew that already as a new Christian. Somehow I was exposed to Colossians 3.15 very early in my Christian life. And so I knew that, but to put it with that kind of clarity really made things click for me. I have learned never to go against my peace. Every time I have, it has been a uh, mistake. And I think about how many of you can bear witness uh, to the truth of that statement. I have learned now never to go against my peace. Every time I've done so, uh, it has been a mistake. And I encourage everybody to make that uh, your own. I've learned never to go against my peace. When we lose God's peace in some kind of decision we're making or direction that we're going into. I always appreciated the fact that Gail said that this was something he learned. I have learned never to go against my peace. And I think all of us learn this. It's not like something we just automatically were batting a thousand on it. We all learn it. And how do we learn it? Well, if you learn it like me, uh, you learn by uh, just barging through. Uh, that check in your spirit, uh, or just, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is removing his peace on a decision, and you just run through it and do it anyway, and then it ends up being a disaster, and now I've got to lick my wounds related to this, and like anything, uh, you do that two, three, four times, and the consequences are big enough, it teaches us then, in terms of decision-making, to stop and to ask uh, not only what does the Bible say about this, but also to ask and, and seek the Lord and, and notice, 
Do I have a peace from God, the peace of God, in moving forward in this direction? And then pretty soon we learned. I don't know how many times. We won't won't do a contest to see how many times you got bit by a decision before you started to know that not to go against the peace of God. But sooner or later in our Christian life, we get bit enough and we realize that when we hit these decisions, we notice immediately whether there is the peace of God in this or there is not the peace of God. And if there is not the peace of God, then to go back to the Lord and reassess uh, that uh, situation uh, entirely. But we do learn it. Ultimately, we do learn it. And for whatever is required to learn it, we are thankful that we have. Um, You know, wrong decisions, especially the more responsibility that we have as individuals, Wrong decisions are painful. They're painful for us. They're painful for other people. And, and soon uh, the will of God becomes the most important thing within our life, and we find ourselves very hesitant uh, to, to barge through against uh, the peace of God. Now, it is important to restate that uh, we never operate on the basis of peace alone as Christians. So the peace of God is something we operate from only after whatever we are considering has passed the test of Scripture. It is always the second step. The Word is always the most important, the one that can never uh, fail. You might remember in the Old Testament a prophet by the name of Jonah. Uh, who was told by God to go to Nineveh in Assyria and uh, preach against that city and its sin. Next scene, we find uh, Jonah on a boat to Tarshish in exactly the opposite direction. He is going to run away from God's will and purpose for his life. And he experiences some measure of peace related to that. He is so peaceful in that decision that he is below deck asleep while this great storm threatens to sink uh, the ship that, that, uh, that he finds himself on. And, uh, and uh, in, in direct violation of, of the word of God. But that's not the peace that Paul is talking about here. Any so-called peace a person might, be, uh, might feel in disobeying God's commandment or his word is not the peace that Paul is talking about here. This is a peace that we, this peace will never be given to us or never remain consistent in our life in a willful disobedience of God's uh, word. And I, I've heard it so many times through the years, so many times in 35 years as a pastor where someone comes in and and uh, will come in to talk and say, I'm divorcing my husband, I'm divorcing my wife, I know the Bible tells me not to do it, but I have a peace about it. And to stop them and sit them down and, and to explain you've got this thing exactly backwards. There is no way that God is leading you to disobey his scripture in this regard. And the peace that you're describing is not the peace that Paul talks about here um, in in the scriptures. 
F.B. Meyer, and I close with this, he wrote a story about a, and F.B. Meyer was a famous preacher and one of the greatest devotional uh, pastors and teachers of the last century. He was in uh, England. It's kind of sad related to him. He was always very insecure about his teaching gift. And uh, sometimes he would teach at a conference and G. Campbell Morgan was teaching and it would just put him in a fit because he just didn't have that, uh, that dynamic that Campbell Morgan had. But all you have to do is pick up a devotional or any kind of a work by F.B. Meyer and you realize he didn't need to become Campbell Morgan. God was doing a completely different thing uh, through his life. But he tells a, a story in, in uh, this regard about a man crossing uh, the English Channel from England itself to the continent of, of Europe somewhere. And, uh, and as they're making their way on that crossing, it's at night and uh, a dark night, no stars, uh, the sky is not lit at all. And one of the passengers was chatting with the captain over the difficulty of how in the world do you make port under these kind of circumstances. And the captain pointed to the distant shore and said, do you see the three lights shining faintly ahead on land? Well, I steer our ship until the three lights merge into one. And then I head straight into the port with the light ahead of me. And I know then that the course is the right course. And Campbell Morgan, uh, not Campbell Morgan, but F.B. Meyer gave the application. He said, in similar fashion, the believer may trust the united witness of the Word of God, the witness of the Spirit, and the peace of God. And when the three agree in a course of action or approve a particular decision, the believer may have strong assurance of the will of God and head straight in. And that captures perfectly what Paul is saying about the peace of God ruling in our hearts on an individual level. So the verse asks us, uh, each of us as Christians, does the peace of God play any part at all in our decision-making as Christians? Might be good to just take it back one step. Does the Bible uh, play any part at all in the decision-making in my life? But to assume that to be true, uh, but to then ask, does this peace of God have any part in the hundreds and thousands of decisions that we make as Christians very, very rapidly uh, within our lives? Am, have I, am I even aware that this supernatural of the Spirit exists in terms of guidance within, uh, within our lives? And I have found, for some of you, uh, uh, talking about here the peace of God ruling in your heart, this is brand new to you. You've never heard this again. And now you will start to walk in this as a part of your Christian life, and God will develop this in your life as a part of hearing His voice and making the decisions that He wants you uh, to make. And He will do that like He's done uh, for uh, me and, and for others. But I find even after knowing this for decades now, as a Christian, and even as a pastor, it never does me any harm to allow this passage just to stop me in the immediacy of my present tense life. And all the decisions that I am facing and needing to make, and to ask myself, 
is the peace of God being allowed to exert its voice and its influence in my decision-making. And if I've drifted away from that, I know better, but I've drifted away from that, than to return to that this morning. And again, if it's entirely new to you, to begin to say, okay, Lord, I see your word is the first step, but you've put a peace within my life that you call the peace of God, and if I begin to make a decision that's contrary to yours, you will, uh, I, I will lose my peace related to moving in that direction. Now, Lord, teach me about this supernatural dynamic of the Christian life, and he will do that but a wonderful, necessary... We would live as Christians, handicapped as Christians, without knowing this truth that Paul provides to us in this verse. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. If you're not a Christian yet this morning, the Lord wants to save you. He wants to bring you into His family. And He wants to direct your life. And one of the things that brings a lot of us to come to know the Lord is, hey, maybe we're even raised in the church in our childhood or in our youth, and what does God know? What does everybody else know? We're so smart, the world is waiting for us, yes, to devour us. So we go out in there, and we're going to make all of our own decisions, and then it isn't long before we become the casualty of our decisions. And then pretty soon we realize, I, am, I lack the wisdom and what is necessary to be my own counselor, uh, to be the one who leads me and directs me in decisions. I want God to do that in my life, and He will do that. And it begins by committing your life uh, to God, putting your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, being born again by the Holy Spirit, and then God will now, uh, as one of, you as one of His children, will begin to develop this within you. And there'll be pastors and other, others up in front immediately after the service. They'd love to pray with you related to this aspect, uh, w- coming to know the Lord, or to pray with you about this aspect of the Christian life. They're there to serve you. If you have any kind of need within your life, and uh, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Now, I'm fully aware that when we come to a passage like Colossians 3.15, or really anywhere in the Bible, you can't teach the whole Bible in one day. Uh, You know, so we take the next passage and we deal with the next truth that is in front of us. And so what I do as a pastor, as a teacher, is this is a long haul that I'm involved in. And week by week by week by week, different things get added into our life. We say, okay, I understand that now, and I understand that now, and I understand that now. And then a year later, we turn around and we go, wow, look at how I've uh, grown as a Christian because of what I understand. But I know people can come in uh, to a room like this today, and your marriage is in flames. Or you've had a relapse related to drugs or alcohol, or you are in danger of losing a job or have lost a job, or all these different crises that occur in life. You say, I wish he would have talked about something like that today. But that's just the way that it is on, in, in going through the Bible. We can't cover it all. But these same men and women would love to pray with you and pray for you as well this morning. And so don't leave and take all of your problems and troubles back into the car 
all alone again without talking with somebody and allowing us to pray with you and for you. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the supernaturalness of the Christian life and that it is a miracle of your Holy Spirit right down uh, to the peace of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would not allow, I know you won't allow any of this to uh, return void, to not accomplish what it needs to accomplish in each of our lives as Christians here this morning. And I pray, and we pray for one another, that this great truth in terms of knowing your will and a decision-making in our life associated with the peace of God, that it would become a normal, uh, active, constant kind of thing that is, is happening within our lives, something that we become familiar with, Lord, and becomes almost second nature. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.